This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is January 27th, 2022, and this is episode 274. I'm Strat And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, it's a classic. It's a greatest hits kind of episode where we're going to talk about Fairy Creek once again. We're going to talk about conservatives in disarray once again. And we get to talk about the wood splitter. Good times. I've missed talking about the wood splitter. We've had Simpler. two years of a pandemic that has just been like overwhelmingly just present and just we've missed the whimsicalness of the wood splitter thanks to everyone who supports this show who keeps us going you can join them at patreon.com slash politicoast first of course we are moving forward into the greatest bc premier bracket we have about seven more rounds to go i think i calculated earlier we are into the finals of the different arms of our bracket but before we have to review last week, we had the NDP semifinal. We had Mike Harcourt and we had John Horgan. And John Horgan took it. The current premier was deemed a greater premier. He came in with 37 of 51 votes, 73% to Mike Harcourt's 27.5. So congrats to John Horgan. In the matchup today, we are going into the nonpartisan championships. Basically, we have the nonpartisans to find out who's the best nonpartisan premier, the ones you've never heard of or have forgotten. We have the best NDP premier. We have the best of the conservative social credit and the best of the liberals, both the old and new. I think these will all be quite interesting matchups. I know where I would expect it to go, but there could still be surprises. Let's look at the nonpartisans first. Today, Morda Cosmos versus Robert Bevan. Morda Cosmos was the second premier of BC from December 1872 to February 1874, just over a year. Not a very notable time as premier, despite the fact he's probably the one premier you could name from before 1960, maybe from before 1900. If you're Patrick, you probably named a couple others. Very quirky man. We've talked about him in our past shows. Like the pro for him is he was one of the big vocal advocates for BC joining Canada for Confederation. He was a real visionary in terms of what he wrote about before he became premier. The argument against him is he did shit all as premier that's really notable and he went out in scandal. But that kind of marks that's just up. That's a BC tradition yeah, going out exactly. in scandal. On the other hand, Robert Bevan, the sixth premier from June 1882 to January 1883, six months, he never really was premier of a legitimate government because as soon as he was named leader, he lost an election, but then refused to face the House and lose a confidence vote. And so he just partied for six months as premier without a democratic mandate. And in fact, probably the opposite. During that time, he famously as we've said a few times, offered Vancouver Island to Princess Louisa to give her a 
to make her queen of Vancouver Island as a, I don't know, sovereign monarchy off the west coast of Canada. It's unclear how exactly it would have worked, but it's funny and it's what I think made Vivian get this far. That's all I can say. If the pure greatness of BC premiers is being irreverent and like anti-democratic, then I guess Bevan Bevan is your choice. Otherwise, it's to Cosmos. Vote on our Twitter at PoliticosPod. Let's jump into our first main segment, the injunction stands so the trees can fall. We're revisiting the latest court ruling around whether there is an injunction against the protesters, the Rainforest Flying Squad, who are trying to stop old growth logging in Ferry Creek on the Pachidat territories. A few months back, we had Micah on to talk about a quite surprise BC Supreme Court ruling where the court decided not to extend the injunction, in essence, because the police were getting too uppity and out of control and that brought the court and justice system into disrepute in the judge's view, and therefore, it was not in the public interest to extend the injunction. Teal Jones was understandably not happy with that, appealed, and now is victorious at the BC Court of Appeal. Yeah, we, yeah, I, there was definitely comment at the time about how it was a somewhat unprecedented decision on that, and that, yeah, it did leave Teal Jones left holding the bag. You know, they don't... Uh, run the police and it i think struck a fair bit of number of people as a little kind of unfair that their ability to get an injunction was curtailed because of a third party on that turns out three uh, appeals court justices agreed with that and the decision out of the court of appeals earlier this week was a unanimous three nothing decision that basically took the opposite stance as the the lower court's ruling on that and came to the conclusion that the the lower court judge erred and that regardless of the of the RCMP the or the, the regardless of the conduct of the RCMP that does not affect Teal Jones's ability to get an injunction and that matters related to the RCMP are to be adjudicated addressed etc in other venues and in other legal proceedings. Yeah, it's a very strong decision from the Court of Appeal. It's, like you said, unanimous. They also left it unsigned. So it's a from the court. It's a way they can really underline it rather than just have one of them write it. They say it's basically all of us unsigned. We so strongly believe this. We None of us need to put our names to it. We all are saying this. Like, the Supreme Court's ruling was very unprecedented. That's why I think it was very fun to break down with Micah. This is a far more traditional approach to jurisprudence where you have your different lines of accountability, you have your different approaches to problems. And if this is an injunction ruling, well, you can only talk about injunction stuff at the court. And so this is a far more predictable outcome, honestly. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's probably the legally right and correct analysis. But it does leave these other questions hanging that I think the lower court judge did try to bring. In this case, for example, the Court of Appeal really tries to focus in that 
this is quoting paragraph 72, the concerns legitimately raised by the judge about police conduct are not without remedy. Misconduct affecting the rights of protesters can be addressed both in the prosecution of contempt proceedings and in sentencing. Individuals arrested under an injunction may raise RCMP conduct in their trial and seek charter remedies. And it goes on to talk about as well oversight bodies that exist. And that all sounds great on paper, but I think what the challenge that comes up when the rubber hits the road is that many of the protesters weren't being prosecuted. So they were being arrested and then let go after police misconduct. The oversight bodies we have seem to be ineffective and slow. And all of this is happening against a court system that is trying to balance different rights. It is about, of course, upholding Teal Jones's legal rights here, but it is also about the public interest. That does factor into these decisions. And the Court of Appeal here said it went too far the one way. Uh, I could see how an expansive view from the Supreme Court, where I don't think it's likely to go, could could drag it back a bit. Perhaps. The question of prosecutions definitely did come up elsewhere in this. That was actually one of the rationales for the judge in the uh, lower court to deny the injunction was that even if the uh, Teal Jones doesn't have an injunction in place, there's still criminal conduct potentially involved here and on lawlessness and that that can be addressed through the prosecution service and the police enforcing the criminal code on in that case this this court and decision on there i think took an unfavorable view of that basically arguing that just because you can bring criminal charges doesn't mean that there isn't also appropriate civil injunctions and that because sometimes these things aren't getting charged it, it would leave to Till Jones kind of without rights to solely rely on the the criminal process on that. So it, it really is a bit of a mitz page on that. But yeah, I, I do think on net, this is definitely the, the right call for the legal system to make here. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's it is the more predictable response to this. And I, I think predictability is definitely important in this as well as the concerns over the rule of law, which the judgment was somewhat scathing in terms of whether or not the lower court had given sufficient concern to the interest of justice and the integrity of the courts if it didn't follow through on that. That's a double-edged sword, right? The lower court challenges the rule of law for corporations and those seeking injunctions because you don't know if you can get it because the question is, can you enforce it legally? But from the other side, if you are passing these injunctions that are then enforced by you know, unrestrained militant cops doing who knows what without proper oversight, that undermines the rule of law as well. So, it's, it is a murky situation. What I found really interesting though in here is reading between the lines in this Court of Appeal ruling, there is another party at play. It's not even between the lines at different points. The uh, ruling starts off very early in a like high school level 
You can tell how much these Court of Appeal judges, justices did not appreciate the lower court judge because they start with a high school level approach to here's how Canada works. You have a judiciary, an executive, and a judicial branch. We are the judiciary, not the others. Here's what the others do. They could deal with it. And they say the RCMP answers to the executive branch, in particular, the solicitor general. So the question there is like, why is Mark fight? Why is Mike Farnworth letting this all happen? On another point later on, the question about the fact that RCMP members were wearing thin blue line patches while enforcing this injunction was raised, and that was viewed as undermining um, trust in the judicial system because it showed RCMP members taking a very strong pro-cop view rather than just a justice and dealing the court's justice out. To which the Court of Appeal basically points out that the Attorney General of British Columbia took the position that matters relating to RCMP attire were, quote, for the commissioner of the RCMP, and the thin blue line patch was a labor relations matter for the court not to become involved, which is the government of BC once again ducking out of oversight responsibilities where they're like, this thing that's raised as a intimidation tactic it's actually just a dress code issue. And you get two different spots in here where the court's saying the government could do something if they cared. Yeah, because judges don't want to be in the position of micromanaging uniform policy for any sector of public employees at all if they don't have to. And yeah, it's entirely reasonable to put that kind of where it belongs with the bodies that have direct oversight of the police on that. If you want to get mad about what's going on there, it's definitely the case where the uh, the focus should probably be uh, more centered in Victoria and the cabinet than necessarily uh, what the courts are granting or not granting in this case. It's unclear if this is going to get appealed. I've tried to look for a statement from Rainforest Flying Squad. I looked a couple days ago and I didn't see anything. They were unsurprisingly disappointed by this, but as far as I had read a lot of the protests had died down recently. Yeah, I was actually, so just in general, I was a little surprised how kind of underwhelming or quiet the response was to this. The last time there was a major decision on this, it dominated the the BC News for a bit, and this kind of just almost seemed to have slipped by, largely uncommented on. It wouldn't surprise me if Rainforest Flying Squad does appeal, because no doubt they aren't happy with the ruling whether or not they do that or not i i think it's fairly unlikely the supreme court's going to take this up the supreme court candidate that is not the the bc supreme court i do wonder if they would appeal it though if they're not actively fighting out there trying to make the stronger case at the supreme court maybe they'll just focus elsewhere like i said i don't think this ruling sets new precedent or radically reshapes Canadian law. So if it's anything, not really curtail the precedent busting lower court decision. So yeah, I guess we'll have to wait and see if the protesters are eager to continue the fight in this chamber or if they'll uh take the hint and start yelling at the provincial government. They've been yelling at the provincial government for quite a while. I don't think they need much encouragement on that. 
somewhere else there's been a fair bit of yelling is in and around the Conservative Party of Canada, specifically related to the fallout from the election, the ongoing questions of leadership and caucus membership and all that uh, fun stuff that has been making uh, Aaron O'Toole's life miserable since September. And this week we got uh, a little bit more of that. First up, earlier today, the election review report came out. Now this document has not been made public, but the, the Globe and Mail does have a bit of a rundown of some of the highlights on it. Basically saying that uh, Conservative Party needs to do more work to improve outreach with racialized communities. That the that issues that the campaign's kind of changing position around issues such as gun control and, and lack of clarity on where the party stood with respect to vaccines undermined it during the campaign. Recommended modernizing voter identification party contacts, kind of the nuts and bolts stuff of actually running campaign on the background. Noted that the 2015 decision to run on the barbaric cultural practice hotline is still causing challenges within the Conservative Party and its attempts to do outreach to various communities, as well as that the there was a view among Chinese Canadians that the party's messaging failed to sufficiently distinguish criticisms of the Chinese Communist Party and China broadly as a country. It's interesting the struggles the conservatives are having with immigrant and minority ethnic populations in Canada. I mean, it, in many ways, it's not a stereotype, but you go back to the Harper era and one of, ironically, Jason Kenney's main jobs was to build bridges with those communities and to sh show where conservative values in or Canadian conservative values mirror in many ways the conservative values of immigrants from yeah, many fact, it, other countries around the world is not surprising. That was a big part of the Conservative Party's success in 2011 was that they'd done a, a very good job of reaching out to various communities in that case and carried a lot of the votes in those communities to the point where you know a, a fairly known book was released a couple of years later basically arguing that uh, there is going to be a permanent shift in the Canadian electoral landscape as the new coalition of immigrant voters and the West would basically usher in a, a generation of conservative dominance in politics. Now, that obviously seems a little absurd with hindsight, but like that, I think, just spoke to the moment in terms of where the perception was and, and where the Conservative Party was with that and how much that as well just evaporated in the intervening decade. I really love anyone who predicts a big shift in the national culture of politics only to be like almost immediately proven ridiculously wrong. Like they, maybe they, it hey, could still turn like, out, but they had two years between when the book was published and when the the next election kind of Cut them down a bit, but the liberals did look pretty shit even early in <laughs> Justin Trudeau's time, and arguably that helped the conservatives far more than we acknowledge. Coming back to the report, it's interesting. CBC 
reports on a number of other sources, or at least one source who spoke to them, who say things like, he was overmanaged and overcoached by senior staff. Uh, quote, the team should have let him be him rather than overcoaching. So there's a really positive view of O'Toole in many ways, but just this challenge that he didn't he wasn't given enough of a chance to connect. Like early in the campaign, he had to spend a lot of time behind in isolation, essentially, like in a yeah, hotel they- studio rather than meeting voters. So the hotel studio thing was I think an interesting choice by that. Putting yourself in the position of August of last year, I, I can definitely see the thought process that went into it. And it was probably with uh, Delta starting to pick up steam at that point and everything. It was probably a reasonable gamble that could could have paid off on that. And if the COVID situation had gotten a lot worse a lot quicker, it, it would have no doubt being a good thing for them to have. But I think part of the problem with that campaign uh, was that it it's, didn't really have a good second act in place and they should have left the studio by the second week and more or less retired it. And they just didn't do that. And they, and yeah, as a result, he spent too much time on someone's screen rather than meeting people in person. And then the other big criticism that comes out is this flip-flopper, as it's described, the fact he had trouble holding to some positions or giving straight answers to some positions. These are the things that kind of plagued the campaign for the Conservatives. Initially, abortion questions, gun control came up a few times because notably, he took a position that contradicted the party platform. That never looks good. No. And and it was particularly damaging because there was already questions circulating around before the writ was dropped about the difference between leadership race O'Toole and leader O'Toole. And the flip-flop injury in the campaign just reinforced that existing narrative in a way that was pretty damaging. We don't have the full report. It's been presented to caucus and we'll have to see where they go and if they learn from their mistakes on this. It does feel like it identifies most of the main problems, though, as at least I would have seen them. There is still that like outstanding problem that I guess we can get into with the other stories that are coming up this week of like this growing disconnect between the conservative base, that like 20 to 30 percent that'll vote blue no matter who, many of whom are cheering on the truckers coming into Ottawa this weekend, and then the other like, 15 to 20% they need to form a government at least, and the rest of Canadians. It's not even just the base versus the rest of the country, though there is a little bit of that. It's a minority within the base and a lot of questions. The last poll I saw, which I'm going off memory here, and this was several months ago, might have even been around when the election was, was that something like... 30% or so of conservatives, 30% of 30% were a little, were vaccine skeptical or not not favor of kind of policies that encouraged people to get vaccinated. So not even a majority of the party, a at best, like a mid-sized minority of the party on some of that stuff. But 
there's been a real problem of the tail wagging the dog in a lot of cases with the Conservative Party, because these groups are large enough to exert enough influence within the party to prevent them from just being ignored or marginalized, but not enough, that should be not enough to dictate the actual direction. It just ends up being this kind of slightly incoherent, well, more than slightly incoherent mess as the leaders try and actually navigate through all that. Will they learn what they need to learn to win? Speaking, going back to your previous statement about making predictions around seismic shifts, I'm going to have to go with no, because the track record on that has not been good. That is true of every party. I don't know. The, the liberals can seem to be more adaptable. I, they, they do have the, the benefit of primarily being a party that is built to win with um, matters such as principles as a kind of afterthought or kind of a secondary consideration. So they seem a little more flexible on that sort of thing, which uh, you know, I'll leave it to the, the liberals. Listeners. Have, the liberals have principles, and if you don't like them, they'll get others. <laughs> Yeah, I'll leave it to the uh, the listeners to decide whether that's a a virtue or a vice on the liberals' part there. But yeah, d- definitely you're a new Democrat. It's something you can probably empathize with the ever present challenge between trying to be an effective party and learn from past mistakes and a a vocal base that uh, wants to stick with principle above other more practical considerations of politics. Exactly. Well, and. Sp- it's it's not even principles though but speaking of those like base instincts one of the challenges O'Toole faced in the last year was some of his Senate caucus colleagues like Denise Batters who don't like how things have been going in the party Batters has probably frankly in my opinion been an embarrassment for the conservatives for quite a while uh the final straw was when she launched an effort to oust O'Toole she did slightly better than the random member of the National Party executive, I think it was, who launched a change.org position, but o- Batters was launching a website and trying to get people to sign on to her database to build up enough members to trigger a leadership review, which is pretty openly insubordinate for a caucus member. And so, he decided to remove her from caucus, but it turns out the Saskatchewan part of the party disagreed. And I guess she's still in the Saskatchewan Conservative Regional Caucus, even if she is not a conservative senator anymore. I'm confused. (laughs) I don't know what she is. She's still a senator, but... A Saskatchewan Conservative Senator, but not a conservative senator. I don't really know what else to say here besides, yeah, this is just another example of where O'Toole is struggling to control the party and get it to do what he wants and does not particularly bode well for his ability to weather the inevitable leadership review, which does have to happen under the Conservative Party's rules. Any election that the party loses, there is a subsequent leadership review. Just wild, though, to have members of the Saskatchewan caucus or regional caucus pretty much undermine their leader. Like, he can't kick them all out, I guess, is the theory. But yeah, really uncomfortable position to be in. Aside from that, we have stories in the Globe talking about how Aaron O'Toole's days may be numbered. I didn't manage to read that one. I see. It it primarily covers a lot of what we've talked about around issues such as 
the dissatisfaction with the party over how the election went to questions around whether or not misled the party around whether or not he was a uh, true blue conservative as he ran on uh, general dissatisfaction with how they've handled things afterwards, his inability to exert sufficient influence on the caucus and members to clamp down on either internal challenges, such as with batters or conservative MPs going off slightly bozo-y eruption ways. I don't know if there's been a full-on bozo eruption of the new caucus, but that may be rapidly coming to an end with this trucker situation where many an MP has from the Conservative Party has jumped on signaling their support for that, which is something that will probably backfire. And it's not even just backbenchers. I've seen statements from prominent ones like Andrew Scheer voicing their support for the truckers in this convoy. And even today, Aaron O'Toole told the media that he would meet with some of the truckers who are coming when they get to Ottawa, though he noted he would not meet with the leaders and he has condemned participants for pushing, quote, division and hatred. So, so what's he going to do? Like, f- walk around the the convoy, flipping a coin and, and seeing who he gets to talk to? No, Scott, he's going to talk to the not racist ones. Because if he's talking with the racist ones, this is a mistake. He wasn't there. It's a real have your cake and eat it too kind of situation. A, look, they have legitimate concerns, that, but I don't want to legitimize their concerns. <laughs> But also the government is screwing up vaccine mandates and we should just be getting back to business. He's in a really bad spot. <laughs> yeah, the the needy has to try and shore up his position within the party and try and keep himself and the conservatives relatively okay in the polls. It's just led to this incoherence that is achieving neither goal. When you have the conservative governments in... Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Ontario all eyeing how quickly they can end their restrictions. Saskatchewan looks like it'll pull the trigger first and really go full back to normal in the coming weeks. Jason Kenney's in a bit tougher of a spot because no one in the province likes him right now, whether you're for or against lockdowns and everything that's going on. You hate Jason Kenney, so he's in a tougher spot. And Doug Ford has an election coming up, but he's still somehow the favorite for that. I guess Aaron O'Toole could have a worse position to be in. He could be Jason Kenney. And amid all of this, I guess the other big question that we've been discussing in our DMs is just, where are the conservatives on Ukraine? Because that would seem to be an easy one for them. Yeah, this is something that's puzzled me. So, oh, I'm not even sure what the day was. Back around, I think, the 12th or 13th of the month. The Conservative Party put out a statement to O'Toole, you know, shared it via tweet and whatnot. What you would expect the Conservative Party to to say in that case, it's important to stand up against uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine. Canada needs to be doing more. We should be cons- increasing our support in the face of a potential Russian invasion. The exact stuff you would expect a conservative politician to say the weird thing is it's been the only thing they said i'm sure he's gotten a couple questions on ukraine since then but in terms of the the communication part stuff the party is pushing out there is very little of that on ukraine and, and basically 
nothing that they've really focused on since then. I, I think one or two of them might have criticized the decision not to send more military support in terms of equipment and weapons to them that we'll get to in a little bit. But like beyond that, they, they've more or less been pretty silent on this. And this is a odd thing because it's the exact sort of thing that kind of you would expect would be red meat for the base and not just the conservative party most canadians the the overwhelming majority of them do not like what they're seeing from russia in the current situation and it's the sort of thing you would think would be an easy win would fit very naturally in with conservative politics and it's the sort of easy thing that a leader that was having a little trouble would want to glom onto or kind of start to talk about a lot more. And it's just a little odd that's there. And it's a, a striking contrast to where the Conservative Party was in 2014 after Russia invaded Ukraine the first time, the first time post end of Cold War on that. And at that point, the, the Harper government made a very big deal about uh, opposing the Russian aggression in Ukraine. And it's just odd that sentiment seems much more muted this time around. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a conclusion on the, why that is. but it, Sure. It's a bit of extra context and for the conservative's sake. on the, I did find a piece from Global News that says on Tuesday of this week, just a couple days ago, MPs James Bezin... Michael Chong, who's the foreign affairs critic and the procurement critic, Pierre Paul Haas, called on the government to redirect weapons to Ukraine that were supposed that are going to Kurdish Peshmerga fighters in northern Iraq. But that's a very small statement relative to the leader saying anything or even uh, Michael Chong doing regular press on this. The thing that I can come up with is the Conservatives are guessing or know that Canadians don't actually care about foreign policy, especially in the midst of ongoing COVID. Like if the Conservatives are assuming that most Canadians are focused on inflation, COVID, and these kind of day-to-day -day issues, their chance of being the opposition party who says, why aren't we more on foreign policy is not likely to move votes. Like I can see why you do it when you're in government because A, you have to make those decisions and B, you can distract from your foreign, your domestic policy in the way Boris Johnson can use Ukraine to talk about anything but his flailing prime ministership, which involves questions like how many illegal parties did he go to and host in 10 Downing Street while lockdowns were happening in the country. Things that are now subject to almost criminal investigations, I believe. So, Ukraine is a good discussion point for the Conservatives in the UK. I'm, I do think most Canadians don't care. Like, Ukrainian Canadians like a, care. Ukrainian Canadians care three, a lot, but yeah. It's not a top three issue or anything, but it is one of those things where it's not going to be a vote mover, but I, I could see it being an important kind of distinguisher, you know, clarifies where the party is, actually adds some definition to O'Toole that we have, as we discussed earlier, 
think he is lacking in and could definitely use. He may just be too focused on keeping his job to worry about anything longer than the next three months. Yeah, the thing is, like, I think this would actually help him keep his job. There is a rally around the flag effect, and yeah, it's harder in opposition, but you can get that going a little bit in opposition on this. And the the other thing that's just a little confusing is every conservative politician and leader secretly wants to be the next Churchill and wants their Churchill moment. And here it is, and it's just this, the follow-through on it is nowhere to be seen. Maybe, here's the conspiracy theory, maybe O'Toole's time in the forces, in the Air Force, he was the Air Force, right? Maybe his yes. time in the Air Force left him a pacifist. He came out dis- secretly disgusted by the whole thing. He doesn't want to talk about war in any way. It wouldn't be consistent with any other foreign policy he's ever had. I don't think it holds water, but... Yeah, I think that's pretty unlikely. Amid all of this, the conservatives in the polls, 338 has been, and Canadian polling have been collecting polls there all over the place, but not really in a anything has changed way. There was a sort of notable Main Street poll that had everyone under 30%, like the Liberals and Conservatives tied at 29, but in the PPC up to 13 with the NDP at 17, and the Greens at 3. But that might be a bit of an outlier relative to Angus Reid, who had the Liberals at 34 and the Conservatives at 29 and the NDP at 20. Yeah, there was a Nandos, I'm just looking at the 338, the 14th that also had everyone below 30%. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that their current averaging has 32 to 31 for liberal and conservative respectively on that. Seems like a good time for Trudeau to call another election so he can just get the exact same result again. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, that Main Street poll actually did ask about Ukraine on there. Do you support or oppose increase or send in more troops to Ukraine and provide increased military assistance? 28% strongly support, 23% somewhat support compared to 14% somewhat oppose and 20% strongly oppose. So it's you know not the case that there's unified views within Canada, but it's an over 50% proposition on it for uh, where Canadians are. Very tepid. Is where I would find most of these polls. I think I saw the Ukrainian Canadian Congress try and put out a poll that was like, majority are in support or neutral on supporting Ukraine. And uh, when you dig into the numbers, it's unclear what the breakdown between support and neutral is. The point they were just trying to get is most people aren't against supporting Ukraine, but without the context, it was a bad poll. Or at least the way it was reported was bad. But we'll come back to rounding up some Ukraine news. But let's talk about Canada's most prominent Ukrainian, Krista Freeland. People want her to be prime minister, it turns out. Yeah, so the Globe and Mail's reporting on a poll that they commissioned uh, that has Miss Freeland leading the current prime minister for the preferred leader of the Liberal Party. So 25% of respondents to this poll said that Freeland was best suited to lead the Liberal Party compared to 
uh, only 18%. She leads by 13 points in Ontario and three points in Trudeau's home province of Quebec. I don't know if we've seen polls in the past where the presumptive leader beats the current leader. I can't think of those kind of situations, but I'm sure if you polled like who would be uh, your preferred premier of Alberta right now. This isn't the case of someone as a first minister, but I believe there was a poll earlier this week that had Pierre Polyev above Aaron O'Toole for preferred conservative leader. We just have a very warm view of our politicians and political leaders at the moment, don't we? But there were probably moments where Martin pulled ahead of uh, Gretchen. I think we talked about it last week around like, when is John Horgan's exit? And I guess the same question can be raised about like, when is Justin Trudeau's exit coming up? Does he leave of his own accord? Or does he wait for the liberals to get booted from office? And overstay his welcome. And I, mean, he I don't know have, anyone who has a good answer. He seems to have a fairly good grip on the Liberal Party at the moment. There, there isn't quite the same internal fighting that uh, played the party for so long. So in that respect, his job is fairly secure. But you do draw to wonder how long that can happen. He set a pretty consistent downward trend in all of his electoral results. He's lost the popular vote two elections in a row now. He held on to the prime ministership through more or less the skin of his teeth on having a very efficient vote. And that's the sort of thing that works great right up until the moment it doesn't. And another couple percent the other way could have meant for a very bad election night for Trudeau earlier this year. So it's it's the sort of thing that... The caucus members and kind of people who make up the party should be asking themselves whether or not Trudeau actually has a future and whether or not another couple of years and all the baggage that accumulates from governing is going to make it so he can't skate by on a, a very thin win that counts on a very efficient vote to to get them over the line. And in that case, yeah, they should be looking to see if there is someone that is better positioned to carry the party forward in the next election, because the conservatives are a mess right now, but if they manage to right themselves or even just be moderately more presentable than they have the last two times, they are quite likely to form government after the next election. I just come back to this question of, does he actually like the job? Because a lot of the times it seems like he doesn't seem to like legislating. He doesn't seem to like being in the House of Commons or forming cabinet, apparently, as it took quite a while after this last election or meeting with his caucus. And so, all I can come back to with, does Justin Trudeau actually want to be prime minister, is it's all ego. Like, it's all about... What is the legacy he wants? Like, he's a legacy prime minister. He's a guy who wants to leave a mark on this country, so probably I think Trudeau, for better. <laughs> Trudeau likes being prime minister. I don't think he likes necessarily the job of prime minister, but he likes being prime minister and doing the kind of public-facing aspects of the job. He's He never seems happier than when he's out, out and about lecturing people on various things or signaling how 
progressive and forward looking the government is or talking down about the conservatives but the actual day-to-day stuff of running the country it doesn't seem that stoked about and so like he has a bit he legalized cannabis he got the carbon tax through he has started a national child care plan and i think if he can finish if he can sign the last deals and get ontario mainly on board with child care and I think he wants something substantive on reconciliation, but he's also super paternalistic by nature and looks down upon anyone who's not like of his social status. It's not even necessarily entirely about race. It's just you're not as good as me as a human. But if he can get over that and do something substantive on reconciliation, I think he'd be happy to go out, maybe being able to point at like, here is how I have remade this country, in which case it could be within a year or two. Because the main chunk of childcare has been done and just needs to be, you know, operationalized. Reconciliation's never going to be done, and maybe he'll accept that eventually. Um, and probably won't be done under him. But, or he sticks around and tries to name like three others. Maybe he tries to reopen the Constitution and just like blows up the Liberal Party that <laughs> way. It blew up the Conservatives when we did it last time. Only other thing I'll note is that in the poll they found mark carney had uh, 12 percent support francois philippe champagne had 2.5 percent and anita anand had 2.3 percent with uh 32 percent unsure sounds about right let's jump to quick takes and let's start with the most important one the most important story of the night craig james had his first days in court this week as the former clerk of the BC legislature is now trying to justify that a wood splitter being bought by the public for his sometimes personal use was not a crime. Yeah, so this is related to the, well, the entire legislative expense scandal that we so much like to talk about when it was happening and the, the fault from that. Um, but yeah, right now he is on trial for two charges of fraud over 5,000 and three counts of breach of trust by a public officer. Yeah, related to a lot of the spending. In this case, the one of the items is the infamous wood splitter. This was allegedly bought by the legislator for uh, the. This was allegedly bought by the legislature for. Use in emergency situations. It was bought by the legislature. Yes. That's not in dispute. Yeah. This is a public good. Now, the issue with using in emergency situations is that it was not necessarily handy at the legislature should it be needed because it in turn was handing out at a house of one Craig James where the prosecution has indicated they have a witness that will testify that they have witnessed the former clerk splitting what was described as the equivalent of two to three pickup truck loads of wood. They also quoted email allegedly sent from Craig James to former Sergeant at Arms Gary Lenz that said, quote, may try it tomorrow. You will love it. We owe so much to Daryl Plekis for his sleuthing around 
Craig James's house to send us the pictures of the wood splitter on their property. And the trailer uh, too. That And the trailer too. The Crown is expected to call 27 witnesses for this. This trial is going to take up to six weeks. We'll have lots of time to dig into it. We probably won't be calling into the media line, although it wouldn't be terrible. It wouldn't be a total waste of time on my part. Parenting duties are quite onerous, though, in the, in the best possible ways. We'll continue to follow the trial as it goes and maybe and release little tidbits as it comes and try and do a big story on it at the end. The other big news in BC politics this past week, the housing minister and attorney general, David Eby, has been spending the past few weeks teasing some comments around housing and how he's like ready to get more stern and serious with municipalities who he's getting frustrated by the lack of movement on supply and on getting buildings approved and built in this province. Yeah, so this is interesting for a couple of reasons, both because housing is one of the biggest challenges facing the province, but also there's just been a general move in North America. Well, actually, I guess the English-speaking world, because New Zealand's really been the one leading the charge on this one, of having senior governments step in and put limits on municipalities' ability to, well, stymie the creation of new housing, uh, a problem that has led to a fairly significant housing shortage and escalating prices on that. Uh, a bunch of U.S. states have taken various steps in this. A Ontario commission recently tabled a report arguing for basically the same thing on that. And yeah, David Eby's comments indicate that he's thinking about something similar. Won't be released until I, after the October 15th municipal election, so he's trying to keep the issue out of that or stop it from becoming a, a major issue in the legislative or in the municipal elections. But it does sound like we could potentially in the fall or winter of next year have some significant changes to the way land use and permitting works in the province. Listen, the provincial NDP want to hold off on making an election issue out of how they're going to fuck over municipalities until after their progressive friends have won, and then they can fuck them over. But if they make it an election issue, they wi they risk a bunch of right-wing NIMBYs winning. It's a strategy, and I'm in favor of it. Yeah, this is also somewhat interesting because it's there's been an evolution on David Eby's part from opposition critic to now housing minister on this, where before he was very heavily engaged with arguing that the housing situation was all the fault of foreigners and speculators and all of that. And this has, I think, seen him come around to where a lot of advocates are now as well as where the bulk of the the academic evidence point to that there there really is just a pretty sufficient or pretty significant housing shortage that is causing a lot of problems and it's i get good to see him update his prior positions on that and come around to i think a much more reasonable approach to addressing this 
So it'll be interesting to see as someone who's pretty deeply involved in the housing issue. I, I would like to see things move faster on this, but I, I get why he's holding off. And just to close off, let's touch on the ongoing situation in Ukraine, but let's stay on the Canadian side. And what Canada has announced in this past week is that we will be supplying more non-lethal military aid, no weapons, and extending Operation Unifer, Unifier. We'll be extending Operation Unifier for three years, which yeah, will yes. hopefully be enough. That That's our training mission there. We've been training the Ukrainian military since, I believe, 2014 there. And they're also increasing the number of personnel by an additional 60 troops. Uh, so expanding that, there is going to be some support, as you mentioned, for other aid. No weapons, though, which I think has drawn some fairly mixed reactions on that. Nevertheless, it is good to see the Canadian government stepping up and expanding our efforts to support the Ukrainians as they try and avoid a Russian invasion or counter it, should it come. It's interesting because this, the decisions and what we did have announced as a federal government actually falls in line with the main thrust of the statement the NDP put out this week, which was that they're in support of extending the training mission. They do not support the provision of arms or military gear as those could be diverted into many other places. And they note Canada's poor history of monitoring small arms proliferation and compliance. And they also worry about escalation, which I don't think was mentioned by the government. So I just found it interesting that the NDP's position effectively became the federal government's position, even though many NDP members were not happy with the NDP's position because they worried that it didn't. I don't know how much the NDP breaks down on party lines on this. It is definitely divisive within the party. There are people who think the NDP should be far more hawkish on this and people who, who think it should be more, far more pacifist. Yeah, it uh, was interesting. I noted that after the NDP put it out, neither the NDP's main social media accounts or the leaders actually shared this at all. They just sent it straight to the Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister and said, here, do this. Yeah, and it I, worked. So, to, to me, that says they think this is going to be pretty deeply controversial within their own ranks. And the online discourse definitely seems to be pointing in that direction that the uh, the NDP base is pretty anti, well, doing anything to support U-trains uh, as they try and deal with Russian aggression on this. Honestly, it says to me the NDP read the Canadian public the same way the Conservatives do in that none of the opposition parties really want to publicly get talking about foreign affairs in any way. That's all I see here. Maybe the Greens are saying something more substantive, but oh no, they're, they they're still in. No, not right now. They have an interim leader. The the People's Party might be, but I'm not going to go to their website. No, and then there's at least like a 50% chance they're taking Putin's side in this. So, <sighs> Whatever's the maximum chaos route, they'll go that way. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. 
Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Polite Coast is a production of Legend Boot Media, and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Wash your hands and stay home. Thanks for listening. <laughs>